and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. And how the devil are you, Pia Lee? I am extremely well. And, um, oh God, I'm so excited because this is an amazing intersection of your two chief passions. Family aside, but let's talk about jazz. And let's talk about teamwork. These two I know. come together. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I have to say, Pierre, yeah. I discovered only in the last month or so that one of my daughters keeps some notes on her phone about when I compare things to jazz. <laughs> she literally has oh. a, a log of when I, things I've compared to jazz. System. And yeah. so apparently I'm very dull and they both think it's hilarious. And I only discovered recently they've been sniggering behind my back when I'm holding forth. But oh, it's just like jazz. So this is my perfect revenge podcast ah. for them to send, say to them, look, there's actually other people talking about this as well. So this is a great moment. And are they collecting this data to you know, as part of their, their learning from their father and, and receiving wisdom? Or is it to take the piss out of you at a later stage, potentially? I, I think I doubt it's the pearls of wisdom for falling from my lips that, that no. I think it's more of a record of my ridiculousness so yeah I'm sorry to say but I stand by it here here's the thing I stand that, by it that's it jazz and and I tell you who's on my side no no one other than Michelle Obama who said there's probably no better example of democracy than a jazz ensemble individual freedom with responsibility to the group and just for my daughters, Michelle's on my side. And I honestly think that it, it is a wonderful analogy for teamwork, particularly these days where, you know, we think of music very often as, well, you know, even pop music, we hear singles or classical music, very written. I think jazz is far more improvised and changing every time you do it, which is very much like I think teams are dealing with today because we tend not to have done the things we're doing before so we have to improvise we have to make things up and we have to bring each other with us so uh, there I, it is a really good analogy and i'm really excited to have craig scott to talk about this on the show today and craig is uh, an old friend of ours we worked together probably nearly 12 13 years ago at the center for leadership and craig being a professor of jazz at the Sydney Conservatorium gave some wonderful lectures uh, and really was inspiring. Let's treat ourselves to a little bit of of his fantastic talents just to open open things up. Craig, it is so good to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Pierre. It's great to see you and great to see Dan as well. We met over 10 years ago. I think I was um, doing a master's at um, Sydney Uni and you were at the Conservatorium of Music and you came and did this amazing lecture for us about jazz and leadership. And I, I know it was so, so, 
stuck in my mind, gave me a completely different perspective about leadership and about how a team works together in that environment. So you were top of our list (laughs) for season two to come and talk to us because this was absolutely crucial. So I guess let's start. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. I'm a professional musician, a double bassist. I've been playing, professionally speaking, for about about 41 years now, 42 years in fact. That's a good percentage of my life. And I've also been involved for a long time in jazz education specifically. So I actually started at the Conservatorium where you came to for that session that time. In 1985, as a member of the casual staff and I was full-time from 1996 to the end of March last year, so March this year, so 2021. And back at the twilight of my career, um, as, as a casual again, which is actually great. I haven't had to send an email at midnight since March 13th uh, this year. It's been fantastic. Yeah. And what a glorious evening that twilight will be, Chris. It's been Wonderful. great. Um, obviously, you know, dodging lockdowns and COVID and stuff. It's been fabulous. So Yes. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Craig, welcome. It's it's a real pleasure to have you. And I distinctly remember seeing you giving that talk and, and doing my first bit of writing about uh, leadership. And I had so much material from what you said. So it was really inspiring. And, I've, and I still remember things that you said then. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's a great Craig. pleasure. It's a great pleasure. Craig, we have a thing that we do in season two of uh, the We Not Me podcast, which is that we, we give our guests a choice of, our, of, a, of a conversation starter card. And we have three packs, green, orange and red. As you can imagine, they get a little bit more tricky towards the red end of things. Which pack would you like me to choose oh, a question gosh, it sounds like something you should take to every party for a start. It's a great idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I will jump in because obviously you know, being an improvising musician, I should be able to think on my feet. So I'll have a crack at the, the red pack. Thank you. Exemplary, right. Craig. Exemplary. I'm just going to ra- right. generally randomly choose a card here. You'll have to take up. Okay. Oh, here we go. This is good. Something that chokes me up is... What chokes you up? And that's not referring to something that, that you get stuck in the throat. Is no, it? no. This, it could be a fish yeah, bone. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. other type. Yes, yeah. indeed. Right. Yes. Aside checking. from the time I nearly swallowed a Jaffa hole when I was going to the pictures with my grandmother when I was about five and nearly <laughs> choked to death while she was there wondering what to do. That was, <laughs> I was really choked up that day. Um, something that chokes me up. There's a lot of things, actually. It's an interesting question. Anything that is moving... Is, and that's an obvious thing to say. It doesn't have to be music necessarily, although there's a great deal of music that I find quite hard to listen to because of the palpable sense of what the occasion is involving. And a good example of that actually is I'm, a, I'm an, uh, an unabashed fan of Bill Evans's trios from the first great trio with LaFaro and Paul Motion all the way through to his last trio with Mark Johnson and Joe LaBarbera. And... Bill was a you know, an incredible, wonderful pianist and musician, of course, but he was also you know, pretty gave, gave his body a pretty good hammering over the years with various substance abuses and stuff. He was actually about to come to Australia when he snuffed it, but quite by uh, happy chance, he the last week of his life was at Keystone Corner in San Francisco playing with his last trio. And uh, the sound guy on the desk, I understand this is the story, the sound guy just decided to record it for his own personal archives. And so he recorded the entire week. And and it's, so it's interesting because there are obviously like seven takes of everything over the course of the seven nights. But also, obviously, Bill Evans knew that he was sick because it's quite unlike 
anything else he recorded. And he just about annihilates this piano and just about hammers it through the stage and he's going for stuff. And there's a real angular sort of angst and uh, anger and, and anxiety, all the A words, that was good, in, in the playing. And it's I've tried to sit down and actually listen to the whole lot, but I actually can't. I have to turn it off. And it's because you can feel that in the context of what is involved in that music. And I actually, when it came out, eventually as two boxed sets of CDs and was released subsequently to his death because he was actually terribly fussy about what was released. I actually lent it to one of the students at the con and said, because he was a huge fan of Bill Evans, and he actually rang me at three o'clock in the morning in hysterics and said, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I thought to myself, no, neither can I. So I looked at my watch, but anyway. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> you yeah, but me. It was, it, and that was that reaction was actually somewhat similar, somewhat analogous to, to, to my reaction. I mean, it's, it's really hard to listen to because, A, it's so good, but also there's, it's a real cry. It's a real cry. And that, that kind of thing it can be that, it can be some a great work of art. I still get goosebumps when I think about some of the music theatre I've seen, all kinds of things like that. That kind of chokes me up. Love as well, of course. Being in love chokes you up. Yes, great. Craig, exemplary improvising on your heart part, I must say, and that was genuinely off the cuff, so very impressive. And just so thank you for sharing that, and it's a really great cue into it's a take, taking us into your world, if you wouldn't mind. You know, to, talk to us, you know, I, I'm really into jazz, as we said in the introduction, and, but, and, but a lot of people just, it's sometimes hard to understand from the outside. Could you take us into that world? What's happening in a jazz ensemble? Just if you could describe that for us first to help our listener to see what it's like. Sure, sure. Okay, jazz ensembles obviously can have different instrumentation and things of that ilk. So fundamentally, let's talk about like the most common one, which would be probably, you know, a trio of bass and piano and drums and usually a frontline instrument of some sort, so a horn, like a tenor saxophone or a trumpet or both, sometimes a singer and sometimes three horns. Sometimes, of course, it can be a large ensemble, a big band, so less common now, of course. But the thing, I think, one of the things that's interesting for me is the smaller the band the more interactive and the less rehearsed it needs to be. Rehearsals are kind of a bit of an anachronism, actually, in jazz, in a, set, in a sense, because you, you need to know what you're doing up to a point, but you also really don't want to know what you're doing up to a point as well. So there's a fine line to sort of determine where the sweet spot is for that. There's questions that I get asked all the time in the context of jazz, and they're always interesting questions for me. So when people who, especially people who are not familiar with jazz, come up to you at the end of a gig and say, how did you guys know when the piano was going to stop playing and the bass was going to start playing? And, and so then you have to explain to them, it's because you know, even though we're playing music that is improvised, there are there is a structure and there's usually determined by the person who wrote that particular piece. Now, as it happens in, in the context of playing particularly the standards, what we call the standards, so the music of you know, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, all of those great names, of the, you know, Bernstein, you, you, you name it. There's usually a set sort of structure that they all adhere to. So we know if it's a 32-bar song, so that means if you count to four 32 times, you've gone through 32 bars if it's in 4-4, four, four, then that's the end of a chorus. And how jazz actually works is the first time you play that 32-bar structure, you're probably going to play the melody that the composer has written. So let's say it's um, Satin Doll by Duke Ellington or whatever it is. They're all 32 bars. 
And after that, then you start to play solos. And so people say, how do you know what to play? Or you just make it up on the spot and things like that. And in fact, yes, you do make it up on the spot. But that's like saying, when I speak to you in an English language, I'm making it up on the spot. Now, of course I am. I'm determining the order that my words might come out in order to hopefully give you some kind of insight into the meaning of what I'm saying. Um, So when you're playing a solo in jazz, you're using the structure of the chords that the composer has written. So when the composer writes the song, he writes the melody and he writes the harmony underneath it and also, of course, the rhythm of how he wants the melody to be. When you're soloing in that context, what you're actually doing is you're using the harmonic information, the chordal information, and coming up with your own melody, which means that it has to tick certain boxes. Now, it doesn't matter what those boxes are because we could be here all day talking about music theory and everyone will be busy jumping off the roof or something because I'll be so bored. So we won't go down that pathway. But it's like saying you can't take the vowel sounds out of the English language unless you want it to sound like Welsh or something. And you have to use the vowel sounds of the music in a certain way. And by that, the vowel sounds in music are the chord notes, the notes of the actual chords. So really, it's like saying, here's a blueprint. One of these notes has to track through the thing and you can join it up however you like. So that's the way it works. And then having said that, there's lots and lots of ways that good, experienced musicians who play jazz will play around with that structure. So it's like saying you can get from point A to point B going down that road or you can go down this road, you can go down that way, you can go this way, you can do whatever you like, but you'll still get to point B. And those games are the most enjoyable games for for people who are into it. Now, not everybody is. Not everyone can do it, for for example, because they haven't had that experience or that's not their mindset. They're they're more interested in other things. But for me, that's the the thing. Yeah, and so basically all you do is you just play 32 bars and then another 32 bars and another 32 bars. And so you're playing the same structures. But, yeah, good musicians will say, will say, don't play the same chords twice. I used to get hammered when I was a young bass player by the guys who were really the great players in in Sydney. Do you have to play that again the same way? Why don't you play some different chords? You have to say, I actually, I don't know what they are. And the good players in those (laughs) days, particularly for me, a guy called Julian Lee, who was an incredible musician from actually from New Zealand. He was blind from birth, an incredible musician. And he would spend hours telling me why he did stuff. And it was like the university of life. That was incredible. And so, yeah, the more you bring to the table in that way or in any respect, uh, the more you can play games, the more. And those games lead to a situation where you can start to think about the leadership roles within the music and what is in, what's implied by somebody doing something at a particular time and how the leadership changes. I'm, I'm much less initiated than, than Dan is much more, has much greater expertise in this, but it, it makes sense to me that there is this, this set of rules, like an architecture, and that sort of freedom within boundaries gives you the opportunity to be creative. Absolutely. A lot of people will say, oh, you guys just make it all up, don't you? And the answer is only we yeah. only make up the top layer, not the fundamental of it. Yeah, which is almost like the front of the curtain. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And what goes on behind has, al- has already been predetermined and uh, and understood. Probably everyone that's listening can see some similarities. It doesn't matter what context your leadership is within, whether you're listening to this and you're in business or you're running a charity or 
uh, you're running a sports team. I, I think that probably relates. But what I've noticed is it, there's there's unusual to see overt calling out of these sort of passing the baton on the stage. So it's quite intuitive and it's subtle. So how's that done and, and when does it work really well? It might be worthwhile talking about what or how leadership works in this particular environment, because it is a subtle thing, or it's, a, or it's supposed to be. It's actually interesting because just before I get onto that, I'm talking about getting their physical cues and yelling things out. Uh, I mentioned before that the, my sort of main mentor was a guy called Julian Lee, who was a blind pianist. So obviously you could do, you could stand on your head and give him visual cues, but that wasn't going to do anything at all. And of course he didn't need them. Yeah. You should be able to musically set up anything, unless it's something that's really odd. And in a large ensemble, you would have a conductor who would take care of that by directing the music. But so in a small one, it's always good when you've got the bass in your hands and you've got to go and give him a downbeat with your head, which is where the old joke, I'll nod my head and you hit it, comes from, which is one of my favourites. It always cracks me up. Anyway, so... It, within a small, particularly a small group thing, the, the whole leadership thing is driven by the function that you're occupying at the time. So, I mean, there are obvious levels of it. So if you're playing, you know, you've just started a song and someone's playing the melody of the song you know, that the composer wrote, but they're putting their own spin on it, which is the usual tr- um, procedure in a jazz thing. They are, in to all intents and purposes, they're in the leadership role, and that's that's obvious because they're determining. You know, they've probably counted the tune in at the tempo they want. They've said what key they want to do it in. They've they're articulating the melody, and the rest of the band should know it. You know, and should fess up to not knowing it if they don't. And use use these things, not the headphones, the ears underneath them, to figure out what's going on. But within that context. It's interesting, and I think this is the big fascination of playing music that is improvised, ostensibly, even though, as I said, there are rules. The leadership can whiz around the band, like, in, in microseconds, because let's say we've played the first the first four beats of the song, and the pianist plays a different chord that you don't expect to hear in the beginning of the second bar. So he's taken the leadership function for that moment. Does it ever become a tussle on the stage where they're thinking, you've just taken, you weren't meant to, and so you're ending up, it, feel, it must feel a bit like you're listening to spaghetti bolognese going on the stage, really. It's- well, I think it's it can, of course. Any kind of conversation or meeting can degenerate into a shouting fest. I've certainly had my fair share of those in my life. Because of the fact that, you know, fundamentally people who are playing music yeah, ostensibly should be listening to each other. If Even if the pianist does take that moment and be the leader in that context. As a bassist, if I'm playing with somebody and they play an unforeseen chord change, you've, only, you've got that long to work out what it is. That's not hard, unless you haven't had the experience or you don't have you know, good hearing, like good oral sort of skills, you know, in which case you work on them. You know. So, you know, always it's a bit like a school of fish, I reckon. So someone takes a leadership function, and it doesn't have to be the pianist, it could be me. It could be a rhythmic thing that the drummer does, if there's a drummer. Or the horn player plays something that you didn't expect, he alters the melody. So there's all kinds of ways. So what's happening is, as you progress even through the first kind of chorus, there is this leadership thing that's whizzing around. Someone says, suggests this. 
it's kind of almost, I don't know, Chinese whispers or whatever you would call it now, if you're not allowed to say that, where someone goes, blah, and the next minute it's blah, blah, the next minute it's blah, 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 you know. But it's the same thing. And so that's exciting. When it doesn't work, of course, is if people are not listening. Or indeed, they're so set in their ways that they just can't listen. And there have been a couple of bands that I've been in my life with really super good players. But they were all so stubborn that they would not give way. This is the chord change I'm going to play, and it, I will play it until hell freezes over. So if you don't... You know, and So for me, that's a problem. That takes away the spirit of what you're trying to do. One of the things that came up here when you, and actually every single time uh, that I ran one of those workshops, which was quite a lot, actually, was the fact that people would say, when does, we talked, we would talk a lot about the notion of leadership and all of the skills involved, listening, speaking a common a lingua franca, all of those things, speaking a common language. I was doing a gig, uh, I don't believe this gentleman was from your particular cohort, but it wasn't far from that time. It was within a year or so of it. I was doing a gig one night and it was shit out, really. It was awful. <laughs> it was just like, it was like five it's people who had term. never met each other. It's a, it's a technical, just in case you're not sure about that, listener, that means it wasn't very good. <laughs> no, that's right, yeah. yeah. That's an old wine term, Cabernet. And, in, oh, oh, and at the end of the first set, which was mercifully short because we all wanted to punch each other, it, I went over to the bar because I don't normally drink when I play because obviously if you are in a situation where you're supposed to be listening and supposed to be professional and doing all this, then yeah, you keep your sensibilities intact. At least that's what you do now in the 20th, 21st century. And uh, this guy came over to the bar and he said, oh, do you remember me? And I said, looked at him, I thought, geez, I said to him, look, your face is familiar, but I don't know from where. And he said, oh, I've just, I'd, a couple, last year I did that workshop that you did at the con on leadership and improvisation. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, and he said, I remember your face. You're the guy from Telstra. Is that right? And he goes, yeah, that's right. That's me. And he sort of said, yeah, it was really, really interesting seeing this gig tonight. And I thought, and I said, oh, that's good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And he said, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, it's really here. <laughs> and I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm really, but it's really interesting. And I said, so what's interesting? Use the interest, use said, the I word. <laughs> yeah, the I word. He said to me, well, you know, all that stuff you were talking about, the leadership and the listening to each other and, you know, how the music works. And I said, yeah. He goes, it's not really working tonight, is it? And I thought, <laughs> Brutal. No, and I said to him, no. And he said, well, how come it's not? I said, because there are five titanic egos on the stage. Nobody's <laughs> listening to each other. Nobody gives a shit about what the music sounds like. And I just said, that's why. And so then I went over and had a bit of a chat to the rest of the band. And I wasn't, I wasn't the leader, but we were all miserable. Cause, and we all played together really well as a rule. This was the thing. And I said, look, I've just had a very interesting experience. And I told them that experience and what this guy had said and what was going on and turned out that like everybody had some kind of thing happen that day that, that bugged them, including me. So yeah, none of us had bought our A game. So we all sat down and had a glass of wine or something each, and went back on and the rest of the night was good. But it was a fascinating thing that guy told me that came up and made that observation because it actually saved the gig. I was, I was thinking, I wonder if I can... What if there's anyone in the audience who could sit in and play the bass in the second set? No, none of my students are here, bugger. Yeah. You know, so so yeah. <laughs> well, I was trying to get out, and it finished up being good. That's such a good lesson, though, Craig, because we tend to blame one another or find other people that they find another reason why it's not working. Whereas in actual fact, what you weren't listening to was each other. There was probably something that just needed to be unearthed. And I also remember from the work that we did was what's that unifying purpose of being together in an ensemble? What are you actually there to do? Which which manages 
the titanic egos? I think the three things for me that really are important, and I think that this is for everybody who plays music, it doesn't matter what the genre is. The first thing is you're there to respect the tradition of the music. The tra- yeah, your respect for the people who've come before you, which we are fundamentally trying to emulate yeah, black American practice and add to it by adding you know, an Australian flair if you're in Australia or if you're in Europe, a European tradition of some sort. But fundamentally, the notion of what we play is a combination of Western harmony and black American rhythm. And so that respect is the first thing. So you want that to be the case. Then you want that to be as good as it can possibly be by virtue of listening to each other, bringing your A game to the table, being inventive, trying to reinvent the wheel without losing what the wheel is. And and lastly, you are there to entertain people. In I mean, there are situations where you can be highly adventurous and highly compelling and hope that people will like it. But as a general principle, you're there to entertain people. And it was interesting. I went to a workshop in Boston in 2000. I was doing some teaching over there, actually. And it was run by an incredible vibes player named Gary Burton, who used to play with Chick Corea and all kinds of people, famous, famous musician. And one of the first things he said in his workshop, actually, was that he looks at the people in the audience after the first couple of minutes of the song, and if they look like they're bored, they do something else. Right, so they really are taking the vibe from the audience. Yes, and this is a, the very highest level of performance. It's really important. So those things are really what it's all about. And, and also taking, you bring your own experiences from life, you bring your emotions, you bring everything to the table when you play, if you're an honest performer. And you know, most of the people with whom I've got the great delight of playing are just that. They're, you know, you, if you feel bad or you're unhappy, then you that should be reflected in how you play, not to the detriment of how you play. If you've had a, a titanic, galvanic event happen in your life, that should come out in what you do. And that certainly did in the case of Bill Evans and those trio things I was talking about before. You know, he was on the way out and he knew it. And I think what's interesting about that is, and I think that relates to so many, again, of the, the people who are listening from various teams, a high-performing team is greater than the sum of its parts. That's when the magic happens. That, and that's what I think you're talking about, because that's, you could just be individual artists playing together, but actually you're becoming a team as you play, and that's, that's what's so unique. That's right, and the, if, if that teamwork is not, then obviously it's almost impossible to function at that top level. That's really essential. And one of the things that used to come up when I was doing those workshops, that, that, the type of wonders that, that you came to, Pia, I always would use two students of the, from the cohort of the conservatorium when I did those. So I was yeah, much more experienced than them because I'm much older than them. Not necessarily better, just older and more experienced because there were some incredible musicians in the con, amazing. But I particularly wanted to do that because... It brings into the, into focus their training and their skill set. So being chair of the jazz department for all the years that I was, it was obviously helpful because I knew what they had been through in terms of doing the coursework involved in doing the jazz program. So I knew what they'd learned. I remembered their audition, so I knew what they brought in with them up to a point, it was, you know, what you can find out in 20 minutes of an audition and heard them in the practice rooms. and So I was very confident that even when I put them on the spot, and I did several times in the context of those, by making them play stuff that I knew that they didn't know, 
uh, and them figuring out how to do it, it was possible to do that because of the level of their training and because, obviously, of their expertise on top of that and their great musicianship and everything else. But it brings into focus, I think, the necessity of the fact that an organisation, in order to have that ability to function at that top level, needs to actually have people who have that expertise. And if they don't have it when they start in something, they need to acquire it somehow. So, you know, these young men and women, you know, would had great musical instincts and learnt really valuable information and the combination of that is what enabled them to function at that level it sounds Craig like the training they had the learning they'd undergone was more general than just than learning the dots or the chords that it was actually what it seems like what you're talking about is that ability was to flex to be able to listen to other people to change with the move with the way the music was going which I, I think is a really easy leap into any team actually that those fundamentals are, are not about the the task as in hand but actually the ability to stay tuned to other people and go with what's needed but that is that a reasonable summary Absolutely. And certainly in terms of music, if that's not in place, then you simply can't function. And that's why that first set of that particular gig I was talking about earlier just was so dire was because none of that was in place for various reasons. Not that it wasn't in place within the individuals, but as a collective unit. And this is important. That was not there at all for that first set. I think it's a fascinating story as well, because I think we all see this where we sometimes have a grating relationship with someone or something isn't quite working that day and we think it's to do with us but actually what it sounds like what you established in that case was actually we, there were people were bringing their baggage from the day and it was nothing to do with you you weren't sparking it it wasn't the band that was sparking that th- those problems but people still had issues left over some hangover from something something bad that day which i think is a very common daily occurrence for us isn't it we assume everything's to do with us but it could be anything it's worth being curious about that's for sure that's for sure and i mean it's impossible to avoid the pit, the pitfall of being yeah. a funk of some sort. Now everyone does, you know, like you know. I mean, so you, so having the ability to, to function even if you're in a rotten mood is something that's taken me yeah. a very long time to acquire. Yeah. So at the moment, my sh- I've, I've retorn my rotator cuff, which means that playing the oh. bass is like is agony. But I'm going to work tonight and I'm going to fill myself up with drugs and alcohol yeah. and get through the gig and be fine. <laughs> but I won't blunt my sensibilities to the point that I can't do it, that's for sure. Good, yeah, but, but uh, just something <laughs> a little bit of help. I'm, I'm going to, uh, Craig, going to dodge the opportunity to talk about a jazz funk but and, and just ask you if you could take us out, if you like, with, if you digest all this, you've both played it you've been a member of a lot of these teams called jazz ensembles and you've actually translated that into the world of teams more generally in leadership what would you what's your learning from all those years what would you leave our listener with first of all if you want to have a good team you have to make sure that you are all capable of being on the same page so one of the questions for example that would come up usually in those meetings was what would you do to with somebody, not to someone, what would you do with someone who was in a, in your band but they were not able to fulfil the particular role that you had envisaged for them? And that's a really good question. That's a really good question. It's a hard question. What do you do? Do you sack them? Do you, do you take them aside and talk to them? Do you retrain them? Do you reassign them? All of those are potentially the right answer according to the context. Probably not the sacking so much. That's a bit draconian. 
And so that was a, that for me, that was an interesting question. So it comes down, in my view, the most important thing is, first of all, make sure that people have the skills that they need. And if, and that means regular kind of training, you know, like rehearsals, you know, in music, we rehearse. Not because we necessarily have to, unless it's something that's brand new and has never been performed and there's, and it's really difficult, then obviously it's worthwhile doing that. But if it's just, I would rather rehearse for a nondescript gig and make sure that it's going to be really hot than turn up and play with a bunch of people I don't know because even though it'll be good, it won't be as good as it could be. I want it to be, as I said before, as good as it can possibly be. So the number one takeout is your training. Make sure people have got the expertise. And that means implicit in that is people who who are employed or, you know, if I hire a trombone player to add to a group for the night, I want to first of all make sure he can play the trombone really well. Yeah, that's a given, but I want to see what is what tunes he knows. Does he know a lot of standards? Does he not know any standards? Yeah, you know, these are all in my world the kind of thing that you need to determine. So in a broader sense, does the person, you know, have expertise that your organization needs? Are they able to think laterally? Are they able to work as part of a team. We've had people over the years who were great musicians, but they were incapable of being as part of a team. I'm not going to say who it is, but you know who you are. No, no, no. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so those kinds of things are the takeout. Everybody, irrespective of the field that you're in, what you do to be innovative, you want it to be as good as it can possibly be, flexible, all of those things, encouraging that, working together. You know, and I reckon... I reckon even something like Apple, that's probably even when Steve Jobs ran it, that's probably what it was like. He had a team of people around him who he would have really trusted, I dare say, and would have said at times, no, that's a rotten idea. Probably wouldn't have said it quite as gently as that. And other times would have said, that's a fantastic idea, let's run with that and let's do this with it as well. There's that leadership thing implicit in that kind of structure. And I think that's exciting. Leadership and being flexible about the leadership yeah, not being precious. I'm the leader. Don't tell me what you think is a good idea. That's not going to work, obviously. So you've got to be flexible about the leadership and allow it to ebb and flow according to the the ideas. You know, for somebody like me that is that there's a musical luddite. I love. I absolutely love these conversations because what you refresh in me is the way to see and hear the music in a new way, and also all the parallels. That, that, that relate to any team, anywhere, the structures, the freedom within the boundaries, but the creativity that, that it allows to happen and the musical genius to escape out of the bottle. It's just, it's really exciting. And I, I remember actually, I have a, a closing memory. Dan and I, on one of our last trips some time ago was to Chicago and we did get to hear some jazz together. And so it, and it's, You've really educated me to be able to hear and listen to it and actually really look at it from the dynamics in a completely different way. So thank you so much for that, because I think that different perspective enables us to approach our own teams in a different way. It's been fantastic to be here, and I thank you very much, Pia and Dan, for inviting me to come on. And I'm, it's a subject of leadership and music and all of those things. They're subjects very close to my heart and very, I think, you know, hopefully close to you know, driving the development of teams in all kinds of ways that you know, people may not have frequently imagined. You know? 
It might be worth mentioning just before I go about that book that I referred to. Because for people who are interested in this, I love this word, this concept, there is actually, there's a great book that I stumbled across, which actually I even managed to put in the thrall of the people who ran those things that I was used to do at the university, because I didn't know this book either. It's written, written by, I'm pretty sure he's a Canadian author and musician. His name is Frank J. Barrett, and um, it's called Yes to the Mess. Very pithy title, and it's whatever the sec- its secondary kind of title is: surprising leadership lessons from jazz. And so, basically, he is a, a pretty handy sort of jazz pianist, from what I can make out. And he basically talks about a lot about his experiences as a musician, but also applies that in terms of leadership and organisations and things of that ilk. And it's a great read, so it's definitely worth checking out if yeah, people are fascinated by this topic, and how could they not be? So Indeed. Craig, thank you so much. That's a great recommendation, and thank you for uh, for being on We Not Me today. It's been, uh, I'm sure our listeners will take a huge amount from it, from this fascinating and wonderful world of jazz. Thank you, Craig, for joining our us. Our pleasure. You know, Pierre, his stories there Craig's viewpoint really took me back to a few months ago in the summer when our little band played for my daughter's 21st in our garden and we my our bass player actually brought you know asked if he could bring his sons into play one played saxophone the other played guitar and and of course we were delighted by that but you know these were two new characters and they were great new entries but they changed the band you know they did things that we'd never played before and i remember them coming up with new musical ideas that took us into different places and it just really lit lit the band just was uh, amazing so it just reminded me of that it it really made me think of that because craig was talking about how musical ideas emerge and you go with them you listen and you go with them and it was exactly what happened definitely for the better they shook us up a little bit in a really positive way i think that was a really key point It, it is you wouldn't have expected a jazz ensemble to so clearly illustrate what teamwork is. You know, you could have a group of highly talented individuals, but something's not quite right in what they're delivering. So the higher intent isn't necessarily there. Whereas when you've got real teamwork, and I, he talked about that being respectful of the tradition of music by listening and being as good as you possibly can be by listening. Yes. It's a key leadership trait and a teamwork trait because otherwise you could make an assumption that because you're older and more experienced, your talent doesn't allow their new talent to come in and therefore there isn't space to co-create something. Yes, absolutely. And what we use in business, what I hear is we're too busy and we need to deliver X. So there isn't the listening and there isn't the openness to that. And that could be a quieter member of your team. That could be a new person coming in, a different perspective. So that innovation just sometimes doesn't get any oxygen to breathe at all because we're not open to it. It's a really great point. And actually, if I think about the music lessons that I take, I've been amazed how little of that is about playing and how much is about listening. But when you enter the business world or a team, it's very much about your output rather than your input, if you like. So I, th- I think, yeah, putting listening at the heart of this is something that anyone on a team can can take away. I was really surprised how much of it is that, the ear. And yeah, take that into any team, I think. And I th- he raised a brave point by talking about titanic egos. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> I think if we're raised, particularly in a corporate system, 
through hierarchies to grow our egos that are in alignment with our roles. And actually, teamwork, and, and probably really as we're looking out now over 2022 and all the challenges that face us, We've got, to, we've got to find a way to be able to, I, I think, embrace our team in a different way and step down from those egos because I think the opportunities could be so much greater than we've been experiencing. I, th- I agree. And, I, and it's very heavy on the jazz front, but I think this is a really in- useful story that I tell. I, I, I was watching Herbie Hancock, the famous piano player, talking on one of those master classes. And he told this story. He was playing with Miles Davis. He was a very young Herbie Hancock playing with Miles Davis. Miles, renowned massive ego Herbie Hancock played the wrong note played the wrong chord actually in one of during one of Miles Davis's solos and he had this moment of I've ruined the entire tour he just thought he'd ruined everything but what Miles Davis did was he played something to make Herbie Hancock's chord sound right and I thought that's he changed his playing to make someone else's mistake look right I mean how amazing is that and, and, and right at the heart of that teamwork the the purpose of the thing is to you know is to entertain the audience sound good and not rather than oh why did you make that mistake no i'm just going to make you sound good and i thought that was really powerful quite moving actually to think and i know that herbie hancock was really moved by this master at acting in, in a way that was so supportive and i think in a team we have those micro moments where we could make somebody else look good for the better of the team or or we throw one of our teammates under the bus yeah and, and we sort of get a little leg up <laughs> yeah we stand yeah. on their suit prone body just to get a little bit higher ourselves rather than helping them up <laughs> and and we all make mistakes yeah. and we're all in unfamiliar territory and this year will prove that so we've got a really conscious choice we either make that support and give that leg up or we make a judgment about others, which may well come back to bite us and may not support the whole team. So true. It's just a brilliant thing to take into this this new year. We're in January now, but uh, I think we've got plenty of time to adjust ourselves, up our listening and uh, and support, listen to the others and support the others for the purpose of the team. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful to hear from Craig. And I think some inspiring thinking, but just a new angle, taking it from this world of jazz to take it to any team. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of origin.fm. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.